What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Narrated by Sean McKinley God's Troubadour The Story of St. Francis of Assisi by Sophie Jewett Chapter 1 A Child of Long Ago He prayeth well who loveth well, both man and bird and beast. He prayeth best who loveth best, all things both great and small. For the dear God who loveth us, he made and loveth all. By Coleridge Under the arched gateway of a city wall, a group of people stood, watching the road that wound down the mountain and off across the plain. The road lay dusty and white in September sunshine, and the eyes of the watchers followed it easily until it hid itself in a vast forest, that filled half the valley. On the point where the road and forest met, the sharpest eyes were fixed. The crowd was gay, but not noisy. There were few words and long silences, as always when people are waiting and expecting. Among all the eyes that watched the sunny road that day, the most earnest were those of Madonna Pica Bernardone and the merriest were those of her little boy, Francis, for the company was gathered to see the homecoming of Messer Piero Bernardone, the richest merchant of Assisi, and the Lady Pica was his wife, and little Francis was his son. The others were friends and neighbors of Piero. Some were rich customers, who wondered if the merchant had found for them the beautiful stuffs which they had ordered. Certain of the company were only idlers, glad enough to have something happen to break the dullness of the long, warm afternoon. Assisi, at whose gate the watchers stood, lies far across the sea in beautiful Italy. It is a little city, built on a mountainside, with a great wall all about it, and a castle on the height above, and it looks very much as it did on that September afternoon, more than seven hundred years ago when Francis Bernardone waited for his father. Inside the walls the stone houses are crowded together, making narrow, crooked streets, so steep often that no carriage can drive through them. Some streets, indeed, are simply long flights of stone steps, where the children play and the patient donkeys climb up, carrying heavy loads of charcoal or faggots. But though the streets are narrow, Assisi is not gloomy. Everywhere there is sunshine and bright color. Above the brown-tiled roofs 
rise tall green cypress trees. Over a bit of garden wall trail red trumpet creepers and blue morning glories. Even the window sills are gay with pink and red geraniums. And the open square, the market gardeners sell ripe grapes and plums and figs covered over with fresh vine leaves. Outside the city gates all the world seems like a fairy garden. The hillsides are covered with olive trees, whose gray leaves twinkle like silver when the wind blows through them. Some of the trees look almost as old as the city walls, for their trunks are only hollow shells through which one sees the blue sky, though their tops still bear fruit bravely every year. From the foot of the mountain stretches the river valley, bright with wheat fields and tall corn, and vineyards where the vines hang in heavy garlands from one mulberry tree to another. Between the rows of trees, in the shadow of the vines, great white oxen move slowly, dragging a clumsy, old-fashioned plough, and down a sunken road that cuts through vineyards and cornfields go strong brown peasant women with burdens on their heads. Little Francis Bernardone must have trotted up and down the same steep streets and have played in the same squares that one sees today. But the valley over which he looked on this autumn afternoon contained fewer vineyards and cornfields, and far more forest trees. Francis wondered what might lie hidden in the forest, for he had never traveled beyond the place where the white road disappeared. The hour grew late and the tired watchers shaded their eyes from the low sun that shone across the valley from the western mountains. Suddenly Francis shouted aloud, and in a minute the shout was taken up by many voices. He is coming! He is coming! They saw at first only a cloud of dust moving along the road, but soon horses and riders could be discerned, in a long line, half hidden still, by the dust that rose in their path and turned to gold and crimson haze in the red sunset. As the horsemen climbed the hill to the city gate, the sight was more like the coming of a prince than of a merchant. Piero Bernardone rode ahead, in a company of soldiers well armed and mounted upon fine horses. Behind this group followed a train of pack-horses and mules heavily loaded with the rich goods that the merchant was bringing home. Last of all came another band of soldiers, some mounted, some on foot. All this escort was customary for a rich merchant in those days, for the roads were often held by wandering bands of soldiers or highway robbers. Piero Bernardone needed many swords to defend the silks and velvets, gold embroideries, and jewels which he had bought in the great market-towns of France and northern Italy. At the gate of Assisi, Piero Bernardone dismounted gravely. He kissed the Lady Pica and little Francis. He greeted his friends somewhat coldly, perhaps, for he was a proud, hard man, but he turned a second time to kiss his boy, whom he loved dearly. Then Francis knew the proudest minute of his little life for he was mounted upon his father's horse while Piero and the Lady Pica walked beside him, and all the company, talking eagerly, entered the gate of San Pietro, and wound slowly up the stony streets that led to Piero Bernardone's home. 
Inside the house that night, Francis listened with wide eyes to his father's stories, for the merchant had always interesting adventures to tell. He had visited the great fairs to which other merchants came, from Greece, from Africa, from Syria, from Germany, and England. While he bought and exchanged goods, he heard news from all over the world, a world in which news travelled slowly, for there were no newspapers, nor telegrams, nor railroad trains. On his way homeward, the merchant was a welcome guest at the castles of knights and princes. Noble ladies bought his silks and laces. Famous warriors begged him for tidings of war in other lands, and all listened to any new stories which he had learned on his journey. Of all the merchant's hearers, none was so eager as his son Francis. For him the stern Piero resembled all the strange and beautiful tales that he heard by the way, stories of Charlemagne and Roland, of King Arthur and his knights of the round table. For him he learned the gay songs of the wandering poets, troubadours as they were called, who sang in the courts of kings and in the halls of nobles. Their songs were of brave knights in shining armor, and of ladies with white hands, beautiful eyes, and sweet unforgettable names. Piero Bernardone cared little for the courtly words of these troubadour songs, but, as he listened, he remembered the clear, childish voice at home, always quick to repeat new verses and new melodies. So Piero was glad when he heard the same song many times of an evening. And next day, in the saddle, while he thought of prices and profits, his rough voice sang over and over daintily fashioned rhymes in praise of Isoline and Blanchefleur, of Beatrice and Amorette. Francis learned all the stories and all the songs. Especially he loved the adventures of King Arthur and Sir Gawain, Sir Tristram, and Sir Lancelot. On this September evening he listened till his big eyes were dim with sleep, and all night long he dreamed wonderful dreams in which he became a great man, not a merchant like his father, but a knight like Lancelot. End of chapter 1 A Child of Long Ago This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Narrated by Sean McKinley God's Troubadour, The Story of St. Francis of Assisi, by Sophie Jewett. Chapter 2 The Young Troubadour For Pity Rinneth Sown and Gentle Hurt, by Chaucer As Francis Bernardone grew from a boy to a man, he made friends with the company of gay youths, the sons of the greatest and richest families of Assisi. Their fathers were counts and dukes and princes, and the lads were vain of the names they bore and of the palaces where they lived. It was a lawless company, bent on having a good time, and thinking nothing of the comfort of other people. The pranks of these young nobles were so reckless and sometimes so wicked that the good people of Assisi lived in terror of what they might do next. The youths welcomed Francis into their fellowship because, though he had not a noble name, 
he had splendid clothes to wear, and much money to spend, and because among them all no one laughed so merrily or sang so sweetly as the merchant's son. The hours always went more gaily when Francis was of the party, for it made one feel happy just to look at his bright face. Piero Bernardone was proud that his son should be the friend and pet of these young lords, but the lad's gentle mother grieved that her kind-hearted little boy should come to be a wild and wicked man. Her heart ached in the night when the noisy group went laughing and shouting through the streets, and she could hear the voice of Francis, sweeter and louder than the rest, singing a bit of a troubadour song that he had learned as a child. My heart is glad in springtime, when April turns in May, when nightingales sing in the dark, and thrushes sing by day. The mother would listen till the laughter and singing were far away and faint, and the last sound was always the voice of her boy, which, indeed, she seemed to hear long after all was silent in the narrow street. When the neighbors complained that the conduct of the boys was too bad to be endured, the merchant only laughed. It is the way of the world, he said. Francis is no worse than the others. Boys must be boys. What would you have? But his wife would speak softly, with tears in her gentle eyes. Wait, I have great hope that he will yet become a good Christian. The mother knew all that was best in the boy. She thought, however careless and wild he may be, he has a kind and loving heart. And she was right. In his gayest moments, Francis was always quick to pity any one who was poor or in pain. But one who is thoughtless is always in danger of being cruel. One day, a man ragged and hungry crept in at the open door of Piero Bernardone's shop. Piero was absent, but Francis was spreading out beautiful silks and velvets before two customers, for he sometimes sold goods for his father. Standing in his dirty brown rags, among the red and purple stuffs and the gold embroideries, the beggar cried, In the name of God give me something, for I am starving. Francis, whose mind was intent on his bargain, impatiently sent the man away. A moment later he was sorry. What would I have done, he said to himself, if that man had asked me for money in the name of a count or a baron? What ought I to do when he comes in the name of God? Leaving the astonished customers in the shop, the boy ran out into the street, found the beggar, and gave him all the money he had in his purse. Despite his gay life, Francis had times of being thoughtful and dissatisfied with himself. As he went up and down the streets of Assisi, well-dressed and well-fed, he saw people, sick and hungry and ragged, glad to receive a crust of bread or an old cloak. These people, thought Francis, would live for months on the money that I waste in one day. Sometimes he would throw his purse to a starving man, or his bright cloak to a ragged one, and his merry friends would laugh and jest at him for his folly. Then they would all ride away gaily, and even Francis would forget. He did not forget his old love for the stories of King Arthur and the Round Table. He disliked more and more the thought of being a merchant. He wanted to travel, to see far-away countries, 
but he wanted to go as a soldier, not as a tradesman. He wanted to storm great castles, to rescue fair ladies, to ride at the head of the fearless band of knights. He loved the knights of the old stories, not alone because they were strong in battle, but because they were gracious in speech, true of their word, and kind to all the unfortunate and weak. Perhaps it was his love for gentle manners and brave deeds that kept Francis from becoming altogether hard-hearted and selfish in these days. Besides the songs of love and of battle, he had learned wise little verses about the duties of knighthood, and sometimes, when he and his friends had been most rude and unknightly, the old rhymes came back to his mind like a reproachful voice. Nowhere is such a noble name as that of chivalry, of coward acts and words of shame it is the enemy, but wisdom, truth, valor in fight, pity and purity, these are the gifts that make a knight, my friend, as you may see. End of chapter 2 The Young Troubadour This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Narrated by Sean McKinley God's Troubadour The Story of St. Francis of Assisi by Sophie Jewett Chapter 3 The Young Soldier Content to Take His Adventure Gladly by Hock Lute. Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. By Loveless. There were many and terrible wars in Italy in the thirteenth century, and the chance of trying his fortune as a soldier was not long in coming to Francis Bernardone. Only fifteen miles away from Assisi stands a larger city called Perugia. It also is built upon a mountain and the two towns seemed to smile at each other across the green valley. But for hundreds of years there were only bitter looks and hatred between the two. Perugia, higher and stronger, lay like a dragon, ready to spring upon her small but furious enemy. Assisi, like a lion's cub, was always ready to fight. Sometimes the lion was victor. Always it was fierce enough to make the huge dragon writhe with pain. When Francis Bernardone was about twenty years old, there was war between the great dragon and the little lion. Down from one mountain came the Perugian army. Down from the other came that of Assisi. With the army of Assisi rode Francis and most of the company of friends who had been so merry together in times of peace. They were gay as ever, and eager to see what a real battle might be like. The armies met in the plain, and fought by the riverside, near a tiny town called Ponte San Giovanni, the bridge of St. John. This time the Perugians were too strong for the Assisians, and the young soldier's first combat was a defeat. One day taught him all the horrors of a field of battle. He saw men wounded and dying. He heard the terrified cries of riderless horses. He suffered from blinding sun and parching thirst. War, that he had thought so noble and glorious, seemed somehow confused and cruel and hideous. The army of Assisi lost heavily that day. 
many men were slain, many were made prisoners, and one of the prisoners was Francis Bernardone. He was too tired, too hungry, and too thirsty to feel anything keenly except the need of sleep and food. Yet he wondered how it all had happened. Could he be the same man who had gone about for days delighting in the song of a warlike troubadour? Luck to the arm that's quickest, and if at odds you strive, die where the field is thickest, but never yield alive. He knew that he had not been a coward. He had not even been afraid. Yet here he was, unarmed and captive. Because of his beautiful dress, and because of his courtly manners, Francis was placed not among the common soldiers, but among the nobles. For a whole year he was a prisoner of war. It must have been a sad change from the free, wild life in Assisi. Captives, even if of noble rank, were not softly treated in old times, and though Francis and his companions may not have suffered serious hardships, the long confinement was, in itself, a cruel thing to bear. On Francis Bernardone, however, his misfortune sat lightly. The army of Perugia could not make a captive of his fancy. His fellow prisoners were astonished to hear him tell of his hopes and plans for the future, of the battles he should fight, of the fame he should win, of the beautiful ladies who should smile on him. The brave knights whom he admired, Gawain, Tristram, and Lancelot, had sometimes fallen into prison, but had won their way out again, to fight better than before. So Francis still dreamed of war and glory, and boasted in his pride, You will see that some day all the world will adore me. Though he was proud and boastful, Francis was still gentle-hearted, and quick to feel sympathy for all who were unhappy. Among the prisoners of war was one man so vain and ill-tempered that his companions would have nothing to do with him. The unfortunate creature sat gloomily apart, with a black frown on his face, and with black thoughts in his mind. The songs and jests and games with which the others whiled away the long hours made him seem all the lonelier in his silent corner. The sight of the sad, bitter face was more than Francis could bear. Many times he slipped away from the noisy group of his comrades to speak cheerily to the solitary knight, and, little by little, with a friendliness that no one was ever known to resist, he won the heart of the miserable man. Through the good will of the boy whom everybody loved, the victim and his tormentors in the end became friends once more, and there was peace in the great prison. All through the long winter, from across the valley, the sad eyes of the Lady Pica watched the towers of Perugia. In her heart she questioned what might have been her boy's fate. Was he ill, and suffering, and lonely? When would he come back to her? She seemed still to hear him singing, as on the morning when he had ridden out so blithely to his first battle. Comrades, let us each be ready to give and take his part, shields bright and lances steady, and all men glad of heart. If the breeze that swept down the long valley from Perugia could have carried the prisoner's merry voice, the mother might have been somewhat comforted. In prison, or out of it, the heart of Francis of Assisi was always the heart of the poet, 
the troubadour, because his companions remembered gratefully the songs and laughter that brightened their captivity, the story of his gaiety has come down to us across seven hundred years. End of chapter 3 The Young Soldier This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Narrated by Sean McKinley God's Troubadour The Story of St. Francis of Assisi by Sophie Jewett Chapter 4 To Arms Twere worth ten years of peaceful life One glance at his array. At last there came a day when the prisoners were set free and Francis could return to his home. The wide valley with its shining rivers, the far blue mountains and the green forest road must have been welcome to eyes that, for a long year, had looked at the world through prison windows. We may be certain that Piero and Pica Bernadone were watching for their son, and that all the neighbors made merry at his coming. We know that his gay young friends received him joyfully, and that the old life of feasting, drinking, and rioting began again. Perhaps in his delight at being free once more, Francis was more reckless than ever. At any rate, it is certain that, a short time after his return to Assisi, he suddenly became seriously ill, when after long days of illness he began to crawl about slowly, weak and pale and leaning upon a stick he was strangely unlike himself instead of being happy to be out of doors again instead of frolicking with his friends he was silent and sad at heart he wondered why he cared so little for the feasts and games and songs that he had delighted in only a few weeks before now they did not interest him it seemed to him that a man ought to have something better to do than simply to eat and drink, and wear fine clothes. Because of his own pain and feebleness, he felt sorrier than ever before for the lame and blind and hungry beggars who came to his door, and his only pleasure was in giving them money and clothes for food. As he listened to the talk in the market-place by day, and in his father's house at evening, he heard many stories of the wars. Men told how houses were burned, fields and vineyards trampled and ruined, how women and children and helpless old men were killed, or left to die of hunger and cold. When he lay sleepless at night, he seemed to see again the battlefield of San Giovanni, and the faces of cruel men attacking, and of miserable victims wounded and falling. In these hours Francis doubted if war could be the glorious thing it had always seemed to him. But when his friends began to tell him of new fighting in the south of Italy, and of a company of soldiers who were going from Assisi to join the army of the famous knight called Walter of Brienne, all was changed. The old love for battle and glory woke up in his heart, and Francis made haste to grow strong again that he might be ready to go to war. These were exciting days for the invalid. The color came back to his cheeks, and his eyes danced with joy at sight of the rich clothes he was to wear, the beautiful horse he was to ride, 
the bright shield he was to carry. He forgot that he was but a page, and that his first fight had ended in defeat. He dreamed of winning great battles, of marrying a beautiful princess, of living in a magnificent palace, or riding to the wars at the head of knights and soldiers of his own. Assisi was full of noise and battle in these days. Companies of soldiers rode through the narrow streets so recklessly that the folk on foot hurried into doorways and stood open-mouthed with fear while the riders passed. In the market-place men talked in eager groups. The voices were loud and excited, but louder still rang out the sharp blows of hammer on anvil. For every smith who knew how to make or to mend armor was busy from morning to night. Furnaces stood in the open square, where the fires looked pale in the sunshine. Gay esquires brought from their masters bent or broken pieces of fine-wrought steel. Common soldiers brought their own clumsier armor, and the small boys of the city stood in admiring circles about the sounding anvils, and thought that, next to being a soldier, one would like to be a smith. All this hurry of preparation was strong medicine to Francis. He forgot that he had been sick. He forgot that war had ever looked an evil thing to him. With his friends he was once more the gayest of companions, and he needed no urging to sing to them, to their heart's content. Over and over he sang, I love the grey spring weather, and all the trees of flower, when a hundred birds together make music every hour. But it sets my heart a-beating, to see the broad tents spread, and bright-armed warriors meeting, and banners floating red. When camp and streets are stirring, when the city gates stand wide, when bands of knights are spurring through all the countryside, I know a joy dearer than food or drink or rest, when the battle-shouts come nearer, when flash bright swords and crest, when above the trumpets braying, and shrill cries of distress, I hear the mournful neighing of brave steeds riderless. Francis seemed to have become more boastful and more gay than ever, so that even his friends wondered at him, and asked him laughingly, What is it that makes you so merry? And he answered proudly, I know that I am going to be a great prince. Vain as he was, however, Francis never quite forgot that brave deeds and not fine garments made a good soldier. Among the company of knights who were going from Assisi, there was one who had for years been a great fighter, but who had suffered misfortune, and was now so poor that his clothing was actually ragged. To him Francis gave his own new coat and mantle, and the other accepted the gift quite simply, knowing that rich clothes are worth little, but that kind hearts are worth much. When the good-byes were said, and the horsemen clattered out of the city gate, no heart in all the company was so light as that of Francis Bernardone. His mother watched him with grave eyes, remembering how many times she had seen the towers of Perugia fade into the red sky at sunset, and had prayed that her boy might come back to her. Now he was going again, not to Perugia, but far to the south, to a country that she had never known. She wondered 
how he could smile at her so gaily as he rode away. End of chapter 4 To Arms This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Narrated by Sean McKinley God's Troubadour The Story of St. Francis of Assisi by Sophie Jewett Chapter 5 The New Road Francis and his fellow soldiers were to spend the first night in Spoleto, a city about twenty miles south of Assisi, on the way to Rome. The road ran along at the foot of the mountain, sometimes through forests of oak and beech and walnut trees, sometimes between olive orchards and vineyards. Presently it struck across the plain to Foligno, a busy town lying flat in the valley. In the square of Foligno, Francis had often stood with his father, selling goods at the fairs. Today he held his head high as he rode through the familiar marketplace. He thought, I shall come back a famous soldier, and I will never, never sell things at the fair again. He blushed with pride when someone in the street pointed him out to a companion, saying, That young man who is dressed and mounted like a lord is the son of Messer Piero Bernardone, the merchant. At Foligno the company halted to eat and drink, and to rest through the hottest hours of the day. When they were in the saddle again, and had left the city gates behind them, Francis no longer rode superbly with his chin in the air. Instead, he went silently, with drooping head, and let his horse lag behind the others along the level stretch of road. He could not himself have told what was the matter. Nothing had happened. The woods were as green and the sunshine as bright as in the morning. But he, who had been so proud and gay a few hours earlier, felt strangely weary and sick at heart. He lingered to let his horse drink from the clear little river Cletumnus that comes dancing down from the mountain and glitters across the plain. But not even the song of the water made him merry. His comrades noticed his silence, but they were all too deeply interested in their own plans and hopes to think of anything else. In the late afternoon they entered the glorious oak forest that filled the ravine where Spoleto lies at the end of the Umbrian valley. Beyond, their way would be through a narrow mountain pass, where, over and over again, armies had fought fiercely to hold the road to Rome. Deep in the cool woods the birds were singing, and, for the first time in his life, it seemed to Francis that they sang not joyfully, but sadly. Perhaps he had not grown strong after his long illness, and so could not bear the fatigue of the hard saddle-ride. Whatever the reason may have been, it is certain that when the party reached Spoleto, Francis took to his bed with fever and that his companions rode on next day without him. And Francis had no wish to follow them, as once before, but this time more powerfully, and surely there had come upon him a great horror of a soldier's life. As he lay burning with fever and sleepless with pain, all his dreams of glory faded. Instead of knights with shining armor and bright banners, 
he seemed to see women weeping, little children begging for bread, beautiful cities ruined and desolate. We do not know how he made his way home. It was strange and sorry journey, and, at the end of it, he met with ridicule from those who had seen him ride away so bravely to seek his fortune as a soldier. But if his thoughtless friends mocked him, and his father and brother reproached him, his mother was glad to welcome and to care for him. Perhaps she alone understood the change in him. The first days after his return were the most sorrowful that Francis had ever known. Though he was sure that he had decided rightly, it pained him sorely to know that his friends thought him weak, or, perhaps, even cowardly. Besides being hurt, he was puzzled, not knowing what he ought to do next. A week ago his path had lain clear before him, like the white road in the valley. Now it had lost itself in a tangled forest. We do not know how long his trouble lasted, nor what he was doing in these dreary weeks, but we know that by and by he began to see plainly again, and all his doubts and puzzles vanished. It was as if he had found his way through the forest and saw the path that he must take, a narrow path and rough, a lonely path, but straight to follow. He did not know that in a few years hundreds of fellow-travellers were to come and ask that they might walk with him along the narrow way, that instead of being, as he had dreamed he might, Francis Bernardone, the most famous knight in Italy, he should become Brother Francis, the man whom all men loved. All that Francis knew was that, in the place of his old love for a soldier's life, and his old desire to become a great prince, had come a new love, and a new desire, a love for all the ragged and hungry and sick and sorrowful folk in the world, and a desire to feed and clothe and heal and comfort them all. This new feeling was very different from his former pity for the poor. He had always been pitiful and generous, glad to give gifts like a patron. Now he was like a lover, with a love that seemed to him big enough to include everybody in Assisi, everybody in the wide world. And Francis was happy again. His friends who had seen him after he came back from Spoleto, pale and sick, restless and disappointed, saw his face brighten, and heard him singing as of old. Francis Bernardone is himself once more, they thought. But when they found that he no longer cared for their suppers and their games, they said, How stupid he is! And they left him to go his own way. End of chapter 5 The New Road This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Narrated by Sean McKinley God's Troubadour The Story of St. Francis of Assisi by Sophie Jewett Chapter 6 The Other Life is as My Life Who gives himself with his alms feeds three, himself his hungering neighbor, and me, by Lowell. About this time Francis made a journey to Rome. Perhaps his mother hoped that a change would bring back his strength. Perhaps Piero 
hoped that seeing many people and hearing news of the war, his son might again be fired with soldierly ambition. Francis himself longed to see the city where so many saints and martyrs had lived and died, and where, he thought, he should find wise and holy men to tell how he might carry out his wish to help and heal all the misery in the world. It was strange to him to travel again over the road to Spoleto, yet he was far happier in spirit than on that earlier journey. South of Spoleto the way was new to him, though he came to know every foot of it a few years later. In the thirteenth century, as in the twentieth, all travellers to Rome were eager to visit the church of St. Peter, but in the thirteenth century the church itself was not the one whose vast dome we see to-day. It was an older church that Francis Bernardone sought out, but it stood on the same spot, and it must have been exceedingly beautiful. To Francis it seemed the most sacred place in the world as he walked up the great nave between the long rows of columns and as he knelt to pray before the altar. But when he stood again in the church porch he noticed the crowd of wretched, dirty human beings who clamored for alms, pulling at the garments and crying in the ears of all who entered the door. As he looked at them and listened to them, his eyes filled with tears, and all the sunshine seemed to fade out of the bright Roman sky. What does it mean, he asked himself, here, in Rome, where there are so many men, rich and wise and holy, is there no one to take care of all these miserable creatures? In the shade of a column, a little apart from the others, a beggar was crouching, who neither cried to the passers-by, nor clutched at their cloaks. He only stretched out a thin hand, and looked wistfully up into their faces. Francis stood long watching this man. No one gave to him, no one seemed even to see him. The beggar's face looked weary and hopeless, and from time to time the thin hand dropped to his knee. Still Francis watched. He forgot all about the crowds of people. He forgot everything. He was wondering what it must be like to sit from morning till night, ragged and weary, begging for one's daily bread. Suddenly, acting as he always did on the moment's impulse, Francis spoke to the silent beggar and led him away to a deserted corner at the further end of the portico. He gave the man a piece of money, and, with no explanation, proposed to exchange clothes with him. The beggar stood stupefied as Francis began to pull off his own rich cloak. It may be that he thought the boy a criminal trying to disguise himself. It may be that he thought him mad. Whatever he thought, he was glad enough to trade his tattered beggar's dress for clothing such as he had sometimes fingered, wonderingly, but had never even hoped to wear. What became of the man we do not know, but Francis, wrapped in a tattered, dirty cloak, went back to sit all day long, begging at the door of St. Peter's Church. Perhaps it was a foolish thing to do, but, at any rate, the hunger and weariness of that strange day made Francis understand better than ever before the suffering of the poor, and because he understood, he was the better able to help. After this one day of a beggar's life, 
Francis was sure that no service in the world could be too low for him to do gladly, and no human being too revolting for him to touch. The most hideous cripple by the roadside seemed to him friend and brother, and his only grief was that he could not make them all understand his love and sympathy. His joy and confidence lasted all through his journey home. Spoleto was not gloomy this time, and the birds in its oak woods sang to him merrily, as he came up the familiar Umbrian valley, until he met the little river Tessio, on its bright zigzag way, Monte Subasio stood above Assisi, rose-red in the sunset, and the walls of the city shone like transparent glass, looking to the eyes of Francis like the walls of the new Jerusalem. In the weeks that followed, it seemed to Francis that simply loving his fellow men made all life joyous and easy, but one day he discovered that there were still battles to fight. He was riding across the valley toward Assisi, and neared a little hospital for lepers, where he had often stopped with gifts of money. His heart was full of sorrow for these sufferers from the most terrible of all diseases, and he thought, I will go in to-day and leave something for them. Outside the gate of the hospital, crouched against the wall in the sunshine, one of the lepers sat to ask alms of passing travellers. The poor man was covered with sores, and revolting to look upon. At sight of him, Francis felt a sickening sense of disgust and horror. He drew his purse hastily from his belt, and tossing it to the leper, rode on as fast as his horse could carry him, trying to forget the face that had been raised to his. Suddenly, like an arrow, the thought struck him. That man also is my brother, and I have despised him. The rider dropped his rein, and the horse went slowly along the rough road between the olive orchards. Francis was both ashamed and disappointed. He said to himself, My purse was an insult, for I gave it without love, and with more scorn than pity. The spring sun was high and hot. The sky was cloudless. Not a shadow lay on the vast, bare height of Monte Subasio. At a fountain beside the road, some women were washing. They sang as they worked, and, at the end of the long fountain basin, a group of children shouted with laughter, dipping their little hands into the cold water, and splashing one another merrily. All the world seemed happy in the sunshine, and, by contrast, the misery of the poor leper seemed the greater. At the sound of hoofs, the songs and laughter ceased and all turned to look at the newcomer. But, to the surprise of everyone, the horseman wheeled swiftly about and clattered back in the direction from which he had come. "'Who is he?' one woman asked another. "'Only that young Bernadone, the merchant's son,' was the answer. "'People say that he has gone mad.' Then an old bent woman spoke. "'Mad or not, he has a kind heart.' It was his goal that kept my poor Giovanni alive last winter. I wish that more the rich folk were mad like him. Francis heard nothing. He rode fast across the valley toward the little hospital. He had not been gone ten minutes, and the leper, scarcely recovered from his surprise at the generous gift he had received, was creeping to the gate with his treasure. He moved slowly as if in pain. 
Francis sprang from his horse, and kneeling in the dusty road, he lifted the leper's hand to his lips and kissed it, as he had been taught to kiss the hand of a bishop or a prince. It is likely that the leper was as greatly puzzled as the beggar in the porch of St. Peter's had been. But Francis Bernadone was not mad. Instead, he had learned, through his own failure and shame, a lesson that some men never learn. For, though I give all my gifts to feed the poor, and have not love, it is nothing. From that spring morning, at the gate of the leper hospital, until the day of his death, Francis of Assisi never met the man who was too filthy, or too loathsome, or even too wicked for him to love. End of chapter 6 The Other Life is as My Life This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Narrated by Sean McKinley God's Troubadour The Story of St. Francis of Assisi by Sophie Jewett Chapter 7 Father and Son O world as God has made it, all is beauty, and knowing this is love, and love is duty, what further may be asked for or declared? By Browning To Francis the world seemed full of new and beautiful things to do. When he saw a poor little chapel by the roadside, he wanted to bring stones and build it up with his own hands. When he saw an old woman bending under a heavy load of faggots, or grass from the mountain, he wanted to take the burden upon his own shoulders. When he saw a hungry child, he wanted to give it his own dinner. Above all, it seemed to him that he must go everywhere and tell people to love and help each other, instead of fighting with swords and lances. Piero Bernardone had been willing to give his son money and clothes and horses, that the boy might be as gay as any of his young friends. But Piero did not like to have his money thrown away on all the poor folk of Assisi. Before many days, Francis found that he had not much of his own to give. He did have some beautiful pieces of silk and velvet and embroidery that his father had brought him from one of his long journeys. One day Francis took these out from the carved oak chest in which he kept his treasures. He spread them upon the floor and looked at them with the trained eye of a merchant's clerk. He knew exactly how much money they ought to bring. The next morning he rolled his merchandise into a parcel, bound it to his saddle, and rode away to Foligno, to the market-place, for it was the day of the fair. The square was thronged with people, under gay booths in the centre, all along the streets, against the palace walls, even on the steps of the cathedral. Buyers and sellers were bargaining. Many were there who had seen Francis ride gallantly by a few months before, on his way to the war. Now they were astonished to see him, with simple clothes and gentle manner, offering his goods for sale. When all the gay stuffs were gone, Francis sold his horse also, and started back toward Assisi on foot, with a full purse at his side. Perhaps the horse he had just sold 
was the very one which he had ridden so merrily over the same road with his soldier friends. However that may be, as Francis neared home, he turned off from the high road, to climb the stony footpath that shortens the way. His heart was far happier than it had ever been before. He smiled to himself as he remembered how he had loved war, how his heart had delighted in banners, and bright armor, and martial music. Now he had no sword, nor shield, not even a horse, and he was a most unsoldierly figure, with his dusty feet and his plain clothes. On the hillside he turned and looked down the road once more, wondering what had become of the knightly company who had gone to do battle in the far-off south. As he went on his way again, he thought gladly, My captain is greater and braver than Walter of Brienne, though he was only the carpenter of Nazareth. I can be a soldier still. The time came quickly when Francis needed more than a soldier's courage. His father and his brother were terribly angry with him, because they said he was making himself and the family ridiculous. Piero Bernardone had always been a hard man, and now, in his wrath and disappointment, he was cruel. The poor mother tried to make peace, but Piero only became as angry with her as with his son. At one time Francis hid himself for days in the little chapel of San Damiano, outside the city where he had found a friend and the poor priest. Piero sought for him in fury, but did not find him. Francis could not long endure to be in hiding like a coward, and he determined to go home to his father, and to explain that he must live the life that he knew to be right. By this time all Assisi had heard of the trouble between father and son, and there were many people who thought Francis a madman. Before he reached his father's door, the idlers and children were shouting about him, making so much noise that Piero burst into the street to know what was happening. When he saw Francis, he was wild with anger. He would not listen to a word, but fell upon the youth like a savage. The crowd stood back in horror, and the father with cruel blows and crueler curses dragged his son away, and, thrusting him, half-strangled into a dark room, locked the door. How long Francis was kept a prisoner we do not know. At last his father was obliged to go away on a journey, and Lady Pica, who saw that all her efforts to soften her husband's heart were fruitless, unlocked the door and set her son at liberty. All Piero's fatherly love had turned to bitter hatred. When he came home he went to the rulers of the city and demanded that Francis should be banished from Assisi. Then Francis appealed for protection to the bishop, to whom he told the whole sad story. He told him of his past life and of the life he now wished to lead. He told him of his father's anger and of his mother's grief. One day, in the little square in front of the bishop's palace, there was a strange scene. Before a crowd of men and women and children, who wondered at the change in the boy they had always known, and who wondered still more at the fierce anger of the father, Francis stripped off the clothes he wore and laid them, with the little money that he had left, at the bishop's feet. Then he spoke, and his voice rang clear and sweet, with no touch of fear nor of anger. 
listen, all of you, and understand. Until this time I have called Piero Bernardone my father, but now I must serve God. Therefore I give back to my earthly father all my money and my clothing, everything that I have had from him, and from this time forth I shall say only, Our Father, who art in heaven. The crowd of neighbors and friends stood silent and astonished to see the merchant greedily seize the money and the garments and go away without one look of pity for his son. Then Bishop Guido, with his own cloak, covered the lad, who stood trembling, partly with cold and partly with grief. We must remember that Francis had a loving, gentle spirit, and longed to be at peace with his father. But, as he had said himself, he was Christ's soldier, and a soldier had no choice but to obey. In his heart he seemed to hear quite plainly his captain's order. My soldier, Francis, you must be poor, not rich. You must not wear soft clothing, nor feast at princes' tables. But you must go through city streets and country lanes, and take care of my sick folk and my poor. End of chapter 7 Father and Son This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Narrated by Sean McKinley God's Troubadour The Story of St. Francis of Assisi by Sophie Jewett Chapter 8 Lady Poverty The olives they were not blind to him, the little gray leaves were kind to him, when into the woods he came. By Sidney Lanier Take henceforth Francis and poverty for lovers. Their concord and glad sibilances made love and wonder and sweet regard to be the cause of holy thoughts. By Dante After these things Francis found himself without home, or clothing, or money, scantily clad in an old cloak lent to him by the bishop's gardener, he wandered outside the city gate on the mountainside. It was early spring, and the snow lay white in the ravines above him, and on all the far-off peaks across the valley. But the sky was blue, and on the stony slopes the yellow broom was in full flower. Francis threw himself down on the sunny side of a great olive tree. He leaned against the warm gray trunk, and looked and listened. A tiny lizard darted across the ground close to his hand, and shot up the tree like a green flame. The wind in the dry silvery olive leaves whispered like a kindly voice, and in every thicket the birds were singing. It seemed to Francis that the wind spoke to him, and that the birds sang to him. He forgot his sorrows, and sang also the gay old troubadour songs, which were the only ones he knew. He did not sing battle songs, but those that told of April, of nightingales, of roses, and of fair ladies. Like a courtly minstrel he sang, O nightingale, go where my lady dwells, and bear her news of me, then listen while she truly tells her tales to thee, and she, if she doth not forget my love and pain, will bid thee swiftly turn again where I wait yet, 
to know how pass my lady's days, to learn of all her words and ways. The nightingales were not yet come from the south, but the sparrows made merrier than ever in the bright broom, and a wood-dove hidden in an oak-tree was calling to his mate, and Francis sang again, the song that he had loved best in the days when he dreamed of fighting splendid battles for the sake of a golden-haired princess. Great lady, who art fairest, men say, of all things fair, the noble name thou bearest none may so fitly bear. Clear fountain of all beauty, that gladdens the green earth, thy deeds of love and duty are more than blood and birth. Even as he sang, he thought, the lady whom I shall serve has no other suitor, no poet has ever sung her praises, and no knight has ever fought her battles, for I will be the faithful lover of the Lady Poverty, whom all men else despise. Little by little the good people of Assisi became accustomed to seeing Francis Bernadone dressed in a dust-coloured robe with a cord about his waist. He went barefooted and bareheaded. Many still thought him mad, and the street-children shouted at him and threw mud and stones. The young men, with whom he had eaten so many suppers and sung so many songs, now jeered at him, and even his brother joined in the cruel sport. Francis was too tender-hearted not to be hurt by all this, but he never answered angrily. He thought, it is because they do not understand. But if his rich friends were unkind, the poor folk who had loved him for his gentle words and for his gifts, when he was the proud young merchant, loved him the better now that he had given them all his money, and was ready to share his crust of bread with any hungry man. At the little hospital where Francis had gone first in splendid clothes, with a full purse at his side, the lepers wondered to see him come so poorly dressed, with no horse and no money. But when they saw how gently he took care of those who were most sick and helpless, they called him Brother Francis and they forgot their suffering while he talked and sang to them. One by one new friends came to Francis, asking that they might live as he lived, wear a coarse robe and go barefooted, and work with him for the poor and the sick. The first of all was a former friend, a rich gentleman of Assisi, named Bernardo di Quintavalle. This man gave away his riches and came to live with Francis in the service of the Lady Poverty. He was called Brother Bernardo, and Francis loved him dearly, and, because he was the first of the little company of brothers, used to call him my oldest son. The second of the new friends was named Piero, and the third Sylvester. Sylvester had been a selfish man, greedy of gold, but when he saw Francis, and after him, Bernardo, give away their wealth so gladly, and live so happily without it, he wanted for himself that joy that his money could not buy, and he ended by coming to be one of the brothers. When there were several in the company of brothers, Francis named them the little poor men of God. Three of them, who were most with Francis, and who afterward wrote down the story of his life, were brother Egidio, brother Rufino, and brother Leone. Brother Leone's name means lion, but he was so gentle and so unlike his name 
that Francis used to call him God's little lamb. Of brother Egidio, who loved long, dangerous journeys, and who was always ready for any adventure, Francis would say, He is one of the knights of my round table. The new brothers were without money, and without even a house in which to live. In the summer it seemed to them to matter little. They slept out under the wide sky, as the shepherds still sleep in Italy, and the moon, rising over Monte Subasio, flooded all the valley with white light, and the nightingales filled the forest with wonderful music. But when the autumn nights grew cold, when the moonlight fell upon a valley thick with mist, the brothers looked about for shelter. Their refuge was a little building, scarcely more than a hovel, falling to ruin and abandoned. It had once been a retreat for lepers, but the lepers had been moved to that hospital near the city which Francis had so many times visited. The older building had been called Rivo Torto, Crooked Brook, from the little stream beside which it stood. Here the brothers lived all through the winter, and when spring came, so many had joined the brotherhood that they had not room to sleep. Miserable as it was, Francis and his first brothers loved their little hovel, and were happy there, and from its scant shelter they went out to carry joy and healing to the sad and to the sick. The ruined hospital long ago disappeared, and to-day it is not easy to find even the place where it stood. In among fields where the corn grows so tall that one walks as if in a forest, there is a tiny chapel with an old well and a hut or two. Even the name has been changed, and if one asks a peasant the way to Rivo Torto, he will point out a great church far away. Yet, in spite of years and changes, the memory of Francis and his little brotherhood still shines over the spot, warm and bright, like the august sunshine on the corn. Straight across the plain, not far from Rivo Torto, in the midst of tall forest trees, stood a little chapel where Francis and his few brothers had often gone to rest and to pray. A rich abbot, seeing that the little poor men had no place to sleep, made them a present for this chapel and the ground about it. Here they built rude huts and planted a hedge and made for themselves a home, which they called Portiuncola, the little portion. A great church called Santa Maria degli Angeli has been built upon this spot, and the little old chapel still stands under its dome. The life of the poor brothers does not seem a gay one as we read about it, yet they were most happy-hearted. There was no work too humble nor too hard for them to do. They helped at ploughing in the spring, at reaping and threshing in the summer. In autumn they gathered grapes or nuts, and in winter olives, for in Umbria the olive harvest is in the winter. When the brothers were paid for their work, they gave away everything except what was needed for the day's food. They often made long journeys, working their way from place to place. Thus it happened one day that Brother Egidio, the knight of the round table, was standing in a public square in Rome, when a countryman came by asking for a laborer to go and gather nuts from a very tall tree. The men who stood about said, No, we remember your tree, it is too high, and we do not want to break our necks. I will go gladly, 
said Egidio, if you will give me half the nuts I gather. The bargain was made, and brother Egidio climbed the highest branches and beat down all the nuts. His share he gathered up in his robe, and went merrily through the streets of Rome, throwing nuts to the poor folk whom he met, till all were gone. Wherever the little poor men came, they brought help and comfort, and people came to love them and to welcome them, even those who at first had mocked at them and thrown stones. For love and joy and helpfulness and gentle words make most of the happiness of life, and all these gifts the brothers had to give, even when they had not a penny nor a loaf of bread. End of chapter 8 Lady Poverty This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Narrated by Sean McKinley God's Troubadour The Story of St. Francis of Assisi by Sophie Jewett Chapter 9 The Bird Sisters not a bird upon the tree, but half forgave his being human. The brothers who knew Francis best in these years, who shared his joys and sorrows, and even his thoughts, have many stories to tell of his love for flowers and birds and animals. When they were planting their little pieces of ground around the poor huts in the plain, he used to bid them leave a corner of good earth for our little sisters the flowers, once in the market-place of Siena, he rescued a pair of doves from being sold. He gathered them up in his robe, saying, Little sister doves, you are simple and good and pure. Why have they captured you? I will save you from death and make you nests for your little ones. There is a pretty story of the friendship of Francis with a family of red-throats who used to come and pick up crumbs on the table where the brothers were eating. Another story is of a frightened hare which someone had caught in a trap. Come to me, brother hare, said Francis, and the trembling little beast fled to him, and let itself be caressed by his kind hands. It even refused to run away on being set down, so that Francis was obliged to carry it into the woods and leave it free to find its way home. One day Francis was in a little boat, being ferried across the lake of Rieti when a boatman made him a present of an uncommonly large fish, just caught and gasping for breath. The gift was accepted gladly, but, in a minute, the astonished giver saw Francis drop the creature back into the water, bidding it thank God. Probably neither the fish nor the fisherman understood the tender heart that could not bear to see anything suffer pain. Yet, doubtless in its own way, the poor fish was grateful to feel the cool water again, and it is to be hoped that it kept away from nets and hooks for ever after. With birds, Francis felt himself always among dear and happy friends. Once these little companions were even too noisy in their merry-making. It was on a day when Francis stood up to speak to a great crowd of men and women gathered out of doors. Hundreds of swallows were wheeling all about, as one often sees them of a spring afternoon, twittering and calling with shrill voices, 
while they hunt their supper on the wing. This time the birds flew so low and were so many and so loud that Francis could not make himself heard. Suddenly he turned from his audience and spoke into the air. It is time that I should have my turn to talk, little sister swallows, he said. Be quiet and listen until I have finished. And so says the old story, the swallows obeyed his voice. A short time after, Francis went on his way toward Bivania, a small town on the southwestern side of the Umbrian Valley. Looking off from Assisi, one may still see the road by which he must have walked. Two or three of his brothers were with him. But Francis was not talking. His head was bent, and he seemed to be thinking so hard that he had forgotten all about his comrades. Suddenly, as it is written in an old book called The Little Flowers of St. Francis, he lifted up his eyes and saw many trees along the side of the road, and in their branches an almost countless number of birds, so that Francis wondered, and said to his companions, Wait for me here, and I will go and preach to my sisters the birds. And he went into the field, and began to preach to the birds that were on the ground, and quickly those that were up in the trees came to him, and they all kept quiet while Francis finished his sermon, and, even then, they did not go away until he had given them his blessing. And when Francis went among them, touching their heads, not one of them moved. The substance of the sermon that Francis made was this, My bird sisters, you are much beloved by God your Master, and always, in every place, you ought to praise Him, because He has given you liberty to fly everywhere, and He has given you also clothing double and triple. You are loved also by the air which He has given to you, and moreover, you neither sow nor reap, and God feeds you, and gives you the rivers and the fountains to drink from. He gives you the mountains and the valleys for your refuge, and the tall trees for your nests. And although you do not know how to spin or sow, God clothes you and your children. God must love you much, since He gives you so many blessings. And therefore, be careful, my sisters, of the sin of ingratitude, and always seek to praise God. While Francis said these words, all those birds began to open their beaks, and stretch out their necks, and spread their wings, and bend their heads reverently toward the earth. And, with acts and songs, they showed that the Holy Father gave them great pleasure. And Francis rejoiced, and made merry together with them. And he wondered much at such a multitude of birds, and at their beauty, and at their attention and tameness, and he devoutly thanked God for them. The old story goes on to tell how, after the sermon, the great flock of birds rose into the air with wonderful songs and flew away north and south and east and west, even as the poor brothers must go, who, like the birds, had nothing of their own, but depended only on God's care of them. This story of the birds was so much loved and so often told that years afterward the painters liked to paint it on the walls of the churches. You may still see in the great church of St. Francis of Assisi a picture by the painter Giotto of the grey-robed brothers standing among the birds and telling them, so simply that it really seemed as if a bird might understand, of the Father without whose love 
not even a sparrow falls. One night, Brother Francis and Brother Leone, God's little lamb, were alone together. It was May, and in a great ilex tree near them a nightingale was singing sweet and clear in the stillness. To Francis the song seemed all joy and praise. Come, Brother Leone, he cried, let us sing too, and see which will tire first, our voices, or that of the nightingale. But Brother Leone, who was, perhaps tired and sleepy, excused himself, saying that he had no voice. Then Francis, his heart filled with the gladness of the beautiful springtime, went out into the darkness, and, all night long, the man and the bird sang wonderful songs of love and praise. But even God's troubadour could not outdo the little unseen singer in the ilex tree, and at last Francis owned merrily that Brother Nightingale was victor in this strange singing match. End of chapter 9 The Bird Sisters What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.